Hello and welcome to the Future of Femalehood podcast, where we build a healthier and happier world for women through artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Amanda Dukoc, founder and CEO of Emma, a female companion that makes women happier and healthier. And here is... I'm Morgan Rose. I'm head of science at Emma, and I'm also a midwife, a women's health nurse practitioner, and an international board-certified lactation consultant. Morgan, okay, I normally talk to you every day and i have not talked to you in f- almost five days how was your how was your memorial day weekend? Oh, we had such a long weekend it was so nice um okay so i did mdma this weekend therapeutic Shut up. oh um, my god did it for like healing and to deal with like some ptsd and it was amazing it was like light bulbs going off um i'll just share this very openly with everyone amanda knows this whole story and it's actually um up on our blog as well on um, emma's website but two years ago i had like a really traumatic miscarriage when i was like 12 weeks pregnant i ended up having a massive hemorrhage and almost died and i went through the whole experience alone um and like my husband didn't come with me he went to bed and that caused like a bunch of problems in our marriage we are now going through a divorce. And so like this miscarriage just kind of really blew up my life in a lot of ways um, in really painful ways. And I've been doing some like really deep healing work with like therapy. I've tried ketamine and then I just did MDMA. And it was like all the work that I've been doing like came together in this four hour trip. And it like made me feel so thankful for everything that's happened. Um, so I'm like, it's helping me deal with things that I wouldn't have normally dealt with or didn't know how to deal with. It's going to help me love my daughter in a different way. Um, So yeah, I felt like it opened up this opportunity to be really grateful for everything that's happened as painful as it's been. So I'm a big fan. It's like going through FDA, like clinical trials, hopefully it'll be accessible to more people in the near future. But I'm like, I think it's a really important tool to add to like our tool kind of like therapy and doing all this like meditative work um but it yeah it's also an important tool to have and i'm like if we have this medicine available to us like why not why would we not want to use it why would we not want to make this accessible to people when it can be really important for overcoming some really big painful life experiences I mean, we we live in a world where um, cannabis use is still legal in most places. And there's like there's a, a certain type of epilepsy that's mainly just in children that they are like 1000 percent positive that it it improves. Like it's incredible the outcomes with these children and families have to completely uproot themselves to places that allow it. And there's very few places in the world. So, I mean, I think that we're far away um, from that. But um, I think that the generation like our children right now, I think that their thought process around this is going to be different. And one day they're going to be the majority of of who votes for things like this. So, I mean, I see a silver lining. I think I also see a a, a scary lining when I think about other things that are going on, but okay. So, so that was a lot in our little (laughs) intro. So I want to, so, so I I have two questions. Okay. First, I want to start just like, (laughs) yeah, wake up everybody. Are your ears bleeding yet? Uh, No. Okay. So, so so first I want to talk about, because we haven't brought this up in the podcast yet, and I do think that we're going to definitely talk about um, Abigail and, and what happened to you when she she passed, like both for you, for her, there was so much that's to that story and story is not even like the right word to it because she was a, a life that we all appreciate. Um, but 
So, so we'll go into that, I think, a little bit deeper on a separate episode, because I know we're going to talk about like, trying to conceive and loss and some stuff like that um, and have some really cool physicians in, in regard to that. But OK, so for me, as like your, your friend and your coworker, watching what that did to you and that so many people in your life didn't understand, not just the fact that you literally almost died and that you had trauma from that, but that you also went through an incredibly difficult loss of a human that you cared about, whether or not she was still in utero, which is debatable to some people, but I think we all know that that is a human life that certainly, certainly is drastic to when a mother goes through a loss, that like, what did you learn before we talk about the drugs? Because I know that's what everybody wants to know is like what that experience was like and like how that changed your brain. But what did you just learn from that experience about the people in your life and how they handled the loss or didn't handle the loss around you? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, before I had um, my pregnancy miscarriage with Abigail, I felt like, you know, I had a very loving family. I understood what love was and watching how the important people in my life handled that situation, even the way that I cared for myself. I'm like, I went to the hospital alone. I, we had moved to New York nine days prior. So it was like in a brand new city. I was near my siblings and you know, my brother was the only person who called me and was like, I'm coming with you. I'm going through this with you. I'll be there with you. And I wouldn't even let him come. Cause I was like, so embarrassed that my husband just went to bed and my sister was kind of, you know, being weird about it. And so I, after going through something like that, where you're like, oh, this is a normal experience to need help from people. And I really felt like I couldn't ask for help and I didn't ask for help. Um, and then I had really important people in my life who didn't want to help. It kind of just shook my whole understanding of like, what does it mean to be in a caring relationship? Um, and show me that like, there's, you know, some strong selfish tendencies in the people that I had chosen to like partner up with and to kind of put an important position in my life. So yeah, I mean, that's been like my biggest recovery is like how to see these relationships a bit more clearly and how to like care for myself better so that I'm not putting myself in a position that's physically dangerous or like degrading to, you know, my needs. Um, but yeah, that really boiled down to like, I have to value and love myself and trust myself and know that like, hey, what I'm asking for is valid, like needing help to get to the hospital and wanting to have someone walk through this experience with me, whether it's my brother or my partner, like that is normal and that is healthy. And I mean, at that point, I just didn't even think I could ask for it. Like, I didn't feel like I was worth asking for. I was like, I got it. I can do it. I'm a healthcare provider. I can figure this out on my own. And that's sort of how I justified my behavior to like, just do it alone. Well, and, and that's just you as a person, like you guys, and I, I don't know if you even remember this, you were, um, and she was so sick guys. Like, like she's not like, it was, it was very bad and very scary what happened to her. And maybe five days after it happened, not even, it was maybe like three days. I don't remember more. This girl calls me and she's like, so I don't think I can come to work today. I might need like just like two or three days. Cause like, Hammers, like I almost died. Like I lost the baby like this. And I was like, wait, what? Like, you know, like you need a lot more than a couple of days to heal. But that's because she's the type of person that she just is always giving to others and always is showing up and is always doing things for other people and supporting the world. And I think sometimes those are the type of people that don't feel like or don't surround themselves with people that are givers because you are a giver. And I think that's a learning lesson for so many of us that like, 
are we surrounding, if, if you're a giver, are you surrounding yourself with other givers or do we surround ourselves with other takers? Because I think that's a giver tendency. Yeah, and I think takers want to be surrounded by givers because it's- Because um, they're takers. For them. It's convenient. It's a nice, that's a nice system. It's a good setup. And I think that's what I realized. I'm like, oh, I'm like allowing certain behaviors to exist because I'm not taking care of myself and being clear with my boundaries and what my needs are. And that does allow room for other people who want to take to then just take. Um, and I'm, I'm no longer doing that. <laughs> it makes me so happy. I um, I have somebody in my life right now who is more of a, like, is not very selfless and is definitely a, a taker. And it's not a judgment. It's just because that's not my, my, my brain makeup. It's been hard for me to understand and how to interact with that person sometimes because it's not how I think. So I, I totally get that. I, um, I, I think it's really amazing that you've learned so much from the experience. You've changed so much throughout the last year or so. It's incredible. Um, so I'm so happy that there's been a silver lining to this tragedy. Um, okay. So before we close out, I'm assuming that everybody wants to know what I want to know. So what, like, what was the drug experience like? Like, what did it feel like? What happened? Like, where were you? And then like, what did you learn from it? I just, I like, got it. I wish we could just live like that all the time. <laughs> um, so what it does is it basically like turns off your amygdala, which is your fight or flight system. It's how you do like risk assessment. It's how you know when you're in a dangerous situation. Um, if it's over-functioning, it can lead to like anxiety and, um, you know, an inability to take risk. So the amygdala is a really important part of our evolution for keeping us alive and like running away from tigers. Living in modern life, the amygdala is just like activated all the time. So we have work stress, family stress, city stress, like whatever it is, there's noise and chaos and someone's always commanding your attention and that can just trigger your amygdala and your fight or flight response like 20 times a day. Um, so what this does is it turns off your amygdala. So you're just feeling very relaxed. And when that happens like for me it was all of these thoughts that i hadn't been able to put together or these experiences that i haven't been able to fully integrate i was able to integrate and that's what a lot of the research is showing is that when you use um, mdma for ptsd it opens up your brain's ability kind of takes you back to adolescence when your brain is like really has like a lot of neuroplasticity it's like the social reward is there like you want to be in a group of people you want to participate you want to talk um and you want to share and over time you know we learn like oh this didn't work that worked and you start to get these sort of neural grooves of what is appropriate social behavior and uh so if you've had like a traumatic experience or if you're just wanting to like be a little bit more open it's a great tool to help rewire some of those pathways and give you the opportunity to integrate some of those messages that maybe you received in childhood or traumatic event that you're trying to work through um so that you have a more like holistic and I don't know, to me, the word like relaxed is what comes to mind, just like a relaxed view of it all. Um, but yeah, it has led to this sort of like post-traumatic growth. Like I feel really thankful for the experiences I went through and even the choices that the important people in my life made. I'm like, of course, I don't want to be in that situation again. And I want to make different choices for myself so I don't end up in that situation again. But I'm also grateful because it helped me see like what I needed to see in order to deal with this and and move on with my life. That's that's amazing. So um so Rodney, 
who is our head of growth at Emma and is also our producer. So he's he's on here, even if you can't see him or maybe you can. So Rodney, I know that, so Rodney just wrote an awesome, awesome article about microdosing and is like, like has done a lot of like research around this particular motherhood. So Rodney, what do you think about what she's saying? Um, it connects with me a lot. Um, I've had very similar experiences. Uh, one in my most recent kind of uh, foray into microdosing with mushrooms. Same thing. It's supposed to connect new pathways in your brain that have been closed off or, or haven't been connected in a while. Um, and I know for myself, it's made me a much more patient father. It's made me a much more attentive husband. Even though I was those things before, um, it made it to where it's not as kind of draining and exhausting on me to where I'm just in a present state. I'm not thinking about anything from the past. I'm not thinking about what's coming in the future. I'm just being present in what's happening now. And that's done wonders for me. And then even my own experience with MDMA um, in the past, uh, my father passed away when I was 21 years old. And that did a lot of, a, a lot of, uh, it did a big number on me. Mm -hmm. And the first time I did MDMA, while it wasn't more for a clinical setting, it was as a young 20 year old. A teenager, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's still, I had this experience where I almost saw a future version of myself in the same situation and like my kids experiencing my death. And it was just very weird kind of future projection on my past experience. And it really, while that might be scary to some people, it brought me a lot of peace. And I have two sons now. Um, and I know that there will be a time where I will pass away and it will affect them. Um, and it just helped me come to terms with, with that much earlier than I probably would have otherwise. Um, so I've always had very positive experiences with um, with drug experimentation. Yeah. So interesting. It's so interesting. So we will. Um, so if you go to emmaapp.co, um, we will put up. It's it's probably already there, but I'll make sure it's there. If not, we'll put up Rodney's um, microdosing article just because I think it's so related to kind of what Morgan and I randomly started chatting about today. Um, and then there's a resource tab in the Emma app, which of course you can find on the App Store and soon on Google Play. And we um, are really going to be beefing up um, the resource section, which of course Emma pulls into the AI conversations. Um, so we'll make sure that it is there as well. But um, well, Morgan, congratulations on such an interesting experience. I'm so happy. So <laughs> weekend. It was a good memorial weekend. Yeah. Hey guys. Oh, Lauren, go, 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 go. I'm eager to chat. <laughs> I'm Lauren. I'm a board certified nurse practitioner specializing in primary care. I also did a PhD in psychoneuroimmunology, and I'm really passionate about making preventative therapeutics accessible to the underserved. So that's why I love what Amanda and Morgan are doing with Emma. You're so sweet. Well, I'm I'm excited actually to hear you um, introduce yourself because that was better than what I had um, scripted up for you. So Morgan, I think we're gonna have to change this up. We're gonna always have to have the guests introduce themselves because they just do such a better job. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. I'm down for that. Um, so Lauren, you are also the founder of The Natural Nipple. Can you share just like a little bit about what that is and what you do and how you've taken your area of expertise to build this amazing product? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I became very fascinated at the beginning of my PhD in the immunobiology of breast milk. So super simply, what that means is there's crosstalk basically between the mom's breast 
uh, and the baby's saliva, making the perfect tailored immune cocktail. And there's all of this data from the World Health Organization about the benefits of that. But what the reality is, is that 92% of moms really were struggling when introducing a standard bottle. So the National Science Foundation um, provided me the same grants that fund NASA to really go out and understand this problem because I wanted to make it easier for parents to feed and pump their milk for as long as possible. So long story short, that's been five years of R&D, 3D scanning women's breasts and creating the very first model of microfluidics that really mimics lactation. So what that means is you're getting latch match to a shape that's made after your breast geometry, so the nipple top. And then your baby's getting an updated data-driven milk flow for every stage of their growth and development. Across Amanda the and I need that. Well, my daughter's five now, but I could not get her to take a bottle. And Amanda's in it right now with her baby. Like it's such a it's such a challenge. If you have a baby that does not, you know, go back and forth from breast to bottle, it can be really scary as a parent to be like, I can't give them anything other than my boob. Yeah. Yeah, it's also trying to work is pretty challenging, right, Amanda? <laughs> it's like yeah, I you know it's it's this is such a fun topic to talk about because I'm so in it. Plus, I mean, you guys have known well. You heard their intros, but Morgan and Lauren are like my two favorite people. Um, in in breast science, that's what I'm going to call it, even though that's definitely not the right word for it. So I'm excited to hear it. But I think that what what Emma has taught me over the years is that. Um, feeding a baby is such a personal journey and that we all start out thinking we're going to do it one way and it pretty much never goes that way for anyone. So it's important that we have tools that are really designed to help moms and also like to take down that mental load and the stress that like rest is best or fed is best, just that, that whole psychology that we have going on. So I, um, yeah. I definitely like my, my current baby is allergic to formula. Um, so I luckily was producing just enough that I was able to continue breastfeeding her, but had to be able to get it into a bottle because I work like it's really hard to record a podcast or meet with an investor or something. If you have a baby on your boob, uh, not my favorite thing to do. So like I really love natural nipple bottles because um, it just makes that, that that easier. And I think we need more products like that. So on the market. Thank you. And I mean, to validate what you're doing with Emma, part of that NSF research that we found and built the business model off of was really like, okay, what are the top four pain points that we see new moms facing and dads too? Um, so the national nipple covers that nipple confusion from standard bottles that literally like when I started looking at another scientist, I love her, Dr. Britt Pados, should absolutely have her on the podcast. She studied how fast milk was flowing out of currently available bottles and it blew my mind because so I was like where is the benchmark no one ever studied lactation so no wonder this is troubling 92 percent of parents but then another issue was 96 percent of women just felt like they did not have the support from their healthcare providers or from essentially the community during the feeding journey and of course you want to do the best thing for your child so like let's get rid of the mom shaming and just as clinicians, what was really frustrating was we're kind of looking the other way. We're just being like top down breastfeed, good for you, but then introducing a product that's causing all of their problems. So um, the supportive community that you've created, um, I just I see such the demand for that. And I love what you're doing with AI. If you want to delve into that. We do. We will. <laughs> Morgan always does. No. Oh, go ahead, Amanda. 
No, 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 no. I was going to say, um, you know, as, as we were, you were talking, I think like where, which is not what, what I thought we talked about today is I'd love to dive just for like a second into why like empathetic AI, I think is so different from like tra traditional AI or really just AI that's not built empathetically. So it was really important when we were building Emma in the early days and, and Morgan is absolutely the one that's responsible for this at Emma, that it wasn't just somebody that had the the intelligence and the capability of of a generalist right of a, of a provider who's a generalist but somebody who was really really empathetic because when i met morgan and when i started seeing her with um with some of our users on these like live sessions we would do morgan's way of making women just feel calm and secure and just like empathy even though like Morgan is absolutely like as pro breastfeeding as you can get, but when she would have conversations with women who were struggling, the way that she would handle those conversations like mm -hmm. empathetically was what Morgan and I were like, we have to have an empathetic bot. And it's so different when you add empathy into AI versus um. No. How do you outsource the boob and scale empathy? And I think like, I would love to just chat for one second. Cause like that is, that is absolutely key from the research. I mean, this is, maybe gonna step on some toes, but like the Gottman research showed that nurse practitioners have much better health outcomes than primary care physicians. But what they narrow that down to is actually, you have to go through nursing school for four years. You have to touch people. You have to, you know, you go through, and I'm not, this is not to say that doctors don't care about people, but um, when you're touching people every single day and you're listening to their problems and you're relating to their problems, I think that's so important to translate that emotional intelligence into an AI model. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you talk about giving someone confidence as well, if you can inspire someone to believe, okay, I'm capable of this, I can come back and latch at the end of the day after my baby's been given, been given a bottle that actually change it like your psychoneuroimmunology impacts your inflammation and your ability to have milk let down um i, I would love to just share this one nerdy thing and then we can move on from psychoneuroimmunology but there's literally when you feel self-esteem you secrete from your from your microbiome vasoactive intestinal peptide which literally its job is to bind to a cell at the viral receptor site. So in, in a nutshell, what that means is there's less surface area for viruses to infiltrate your cells when you feel confident and when you inspire confidence. Like there's molecular mechanism behind this. So I just, I, I love to share that because um, very similar to Dr. Andrew Huberman, I'm, I'm just like, let's learn the mechanism because if we can, if we can get people to latch on to the biology of belief and we can inspire it with the supportive community that you're building, it's going to change health outcomes. Okay. So I have a question about this. First of all, I did not know what you just shared. And that is fascinating to me. And I would love for you to send that to me um, off the podcast because that is just like mind blowing right now. But how, like, how can we use AI to inspire confidence? Have you thought about that within the natural nipple? Because there is like, right, you have the ability to then like use a bottle and flip back and forth between breast and bottle. And you're creating a product that's reducing that barrier and that stress, which can make people feel more confident. But there's also, I mean, you hear not like when someone says like, don't be stressed, calm down. You automatically are going to feel more stressed and more anxious. Yeah. And so there's like, how do you inspire confidence or tell someone that like being confident is going to like reduce your viral load and like, 
improve your breastfeeding outcomes without making them feel like, oh, this is like a pressured thing that I have to do. Um, but that comes with like, what I see is like knowledge and support, um, mm. which can be done through like that human contact or AI. Mm -hmm. so what are your, how are you taking this like really cool piece of knowledge and boiling it down to something really tactile for, you know, the yeah. parent? I think it exactly like you said, when you perf when you have this information, there's still a logic leap. It's like, okay, but I'm not feeling confident in the moment. <laughs> mm -hmm. So let's remove the pressure. And I think what AI is able to provide is access to care. So there's going to be a massive, basically, exodus of healthcare providers in 2025. We already struggled to get an appointment with any kind of um, lactation specialist or doctor as it is. And what I see that doing for the providers is not replacing human care and empathy, but actually giving you the preventative access to education and resources and tools. So like a really, a really specific example is like um, using validation in, in the model. So like reminding someone that they feel what they're feeling is totally normal. You know, a percentage of parents and being like accurate with that data are feeling the same thing. But hey, look, here's a breathing technique that you can try. Here's a hold technique that you can try if what you're struggling with is like getting a deep latch. Um, so I think in short, what you're doing is really sensitive and specific dissemination of knowledge. Whereas Dr. Google, right now, you're getting the top SEO of mm -hmm. keywords actually may not be what you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it may not be evidence-based or it may not be the thing that exactly that you need at that moment. Yeah. I mean, this is like, this is, it's so exciting to listen to you both because you both are providers and I'm not a provider, even if you guys aren't like practicing in, in a general setting anymore. But like when we, like when you have something like Emma, Emma exists and works because Morgan and Lauren are the ones that are, are training her. Like, like, like those are the brains that are creating Emma. We just have lots of Laurens and Morgans. And that's, what's so exciting is what you were saying before Lauren, like, we don't believe that Emma or technology like Emma is going to replace doctors. We do believe it's going to replace some jobs, create some new jobs. And I think that's whether it's in medicine, legal, construction, it doesn't matter. I think it's going to create big shifts because it's like when there was the industrial revolution and all these other big shifts um, in, in industry have happened. So that will happen. However, what's exciting is that we think it's going to reduce not just the mental load of females, but maybe reduce the mental load of providers as well. Like, Think about what's going to happen with AI when it comes to note taking, like the amount of time that is spent with with notes is is insane. And there's no need for that anymore. Like that's a great simple area that to me doesn't um, concern me as much with ethics and stuff like just the administrative tasks that providers have. And doctors don't really have a way of like improving their care other than like tracking HEDIS measures and saying like, oh, we need to close this gap or yeah. like we don't have a way of being like, oh, we actually, we did not have a good pattern detection in this moment and we missed X, Y, and Z because we don't have a way to like really accurately track that. And I think AI is an interesting tool to mm -hmm. use to improve the quality of care and the efficacy of your care um, so that you can, yeah, be a better provider, not just from the empathetic state, but also from your, you know, diagnostics and your ability to prescribe and to know what's what's happening. Um, there's, I don't know if we want to get into this, but it just reminded me of an article that came out um, around how Hungary's using this artificial intelligence to detect breast cancer. 
And it kind of applies the same thing, like their detection rates have gone up by 13% in one clinic um, because they're able to detect the cancer earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm like, that's that's the gap that we want to close, right? We want to use AI yeah. to close gaps and improve care and improve that detection. The way I see it is going back one step and talking about the providers, the burnout and the suicide rate that providers are experiencing is it's so overwhelming and it's so sad because you go in for the right reasons because you really care about people. Um, but then when you get into the healthcare system, the way it's currently set up in the US, it's so overwhelming, like very quickly. I don't know if you experienced this, Morgan. I was like, I can't give someone all of the knowledge that I need to, or even have a proper holistic assessment or human conversation with this person in 14 minutes, which is, it's a volume game if you're gonna actually, you know, get reimbursed by insurance and not everyone can afford concierge private medicine. Mm -hmm. So the way that I see this on the provider side is like a, the blessing that we have been waiting for because you feel kind of robotic when you're taking notes. You feel kind of robotic when you're, you know, copy pasting templates and screening for trends and maybe like looking at the BRAC genes and seeing, okay, like, no, how do we, logarithmically do this at scale so that when it is detecting anomalies in the patient my clinical expertise can kick in and um yeah so i lost the the second train of thought that you were like going towards with the breast the breast cancer prevention no i mean you talked about it. it's just closing the gap and it's reducing the the burnout absolutely in the providers um because that is, that's a real, it's an issue we've seen grow with COVID. Um, mm -hmm. The exit rate has skyrocketed for nurses, nurse practitioners, providers. Um, so I think it is like another tool from that perspective of reducing that workload, helping detect patterns, and then close the gap in care so that, you know, patients are having earlier detection and better outcomes over time. And I do well, want to say, because I'm... I super skeptical as well. And I have to test the clinical validity of everything. So in basically building like an MD version of OpenAI, um, I was testing it. This was three GPT 3.5. This was before four. And, you know, we have to do continuing education to actually renew our licenses. So I'm asking it the questions that I'm already going to answer on the licensure exam, just to see how accurate it is, mm -hmm. you know, actually test its knowledge and in 3.5 the model was surprising like i mean i don't know if you guys saw the movie her but this was like him I was yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's then, good. yeah with the advent of gpt4 like the model just became so much more robust is what i'm gonna say and also it's not replacing our knowledge or making us dumber. My experience with it was, it was like having a panel of 10 of the most intelligent people you have next to you to constantly brainstorm and iterate and get you to think of like, oh, here's, you can, you can actually set up a protocol this way to reduce risk and to improve patient outcomes. I'm like, oh yeah. And it gets me thinking mm -hmm. like more creatively. It's a, it's a, it's a brainstorm with all the advisors you could ever want. Absolutely. Yeah, we use that as like a team in that way. We use, you know, Emma and GPT to inspire new thoughts, think about different ways to say things. Um, it's a fantastic tool. Again, it's not going to like 
replace humans, but it's just our brain is at capacity. We only have so much time and energy and creativity we can dish out in a day. And so to be able to use this and to exponentially grow our ability to do those things is pretty cool. But yeah, attention is our ultimate commodity. Everyone's trying to buy your now three seconds of attention, especially yeah. as your mom and you have a baby on your boob. So how do you get that evidence-based information delivered to you right now? What do you yeah. need to help you right now to succeed at giving your baby the best possible health outcomes? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's something that like Amanda and I are so excited about with Emma is like our ability, which we're doing and we've done, but to train her so that if you're breastfeeding and you have a question around like, oh, why is my baby like, you know, keeps popping on and off the boob? Like, what does this mean? You can go to Google, but you're going to have to go through a lot of like long form articles to find maybe an accurate answer. But with yeah. that, like we can train her to send you a video around that piece of content um, or topic. And so and to help you sort of triage what's going on. Um, so you get evidence based information right when you need it. Mm hmm. Versus yeah. like taking all these classes and over preparing for knowledge that you might not actually need to know about because it's not the issue you encounter. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's that's like to bring us back to the beginning of the conversation too. That's part of reducing barriers to care, right? Is like when it's in your hand and it's free versus needing to have access to a lactation counselor to go to the appointment. Like a lot of women on Emma, like they don't have transportation to get there. They don't have the doctor in their city. They don't have the money, the insurance that covers it. And even if they do, like Lauren was saying, like people are really busy, new moms in particular, like it's hard to just focus on ourselves. And we view that as like a, we're focusing on ourselves, but really we're not. And I think that that's, that's why I love not to bring us back to this, to this cancer detecting um, tool that was found in Hungary, but that's why I really love it. Cause I think it's such a great example of how tools can help um, something that the human brain wasn't meant to do. So like radiologists are so good at what they do, but an AI system can take millions and millions and millions of x-rays and they can find things that are so small that a doctor that was 50 years senior is not capable of, not because he's not smart enough, he's not good enough, he's not a machine. We are humans. Humans and machines are different. And I think that we're walking forward into a society where keeping that that separation of a human-like machine versus a human is gonna be really important for us to build ethically and regulate properly because that is the reality, is that that machine isn't going to work without the radiologist and the radiologist should start to now work with the machine, but we have to know their different positions and we have to start to kind of create that as a society together. And that's what excites me is when I see things like, I mean, a radiologist's eyes are not capable or their brain's not capable of doing that. And it shouldn't be because the radiologist is sentient and the machine is not. And that's like, like there's huge differences between humans and human-like machines. But anyway, so, so I get excited when I think about those possibilities, but that's also, I think what makes us all a little bit nervous too, right? Like why we're all together, like, okay, AI could get a little bit crazy. How do we, you know, keep it moving in the right positive direction? So, um, okay. So to, to kind of shift us a little bit to the left, is there anything Lauren, or actually even Morgan, because you guys are both in the the, the medical um, breast world. Again, excuse my my lack of professional terms um, because I'm <laughs> breast science. That's right. That's right. That was the term that I got. Breast science. Is there anything like in particular related to like just everything from breastfeeding to breast cancer, like that excites either of you with AI, like some crazy idea you've had or something else cool that you've seen? Oh. Can I touch on this real quick, Lauren? Of course. Well, I think something that 
many women um, don't know actually is that by prolonging breastfeeding to at least six months and then uh, ideally two years, you actually dramatically reduce your risk of getting breast cancer. Um, and that's because of the oxytocin, the reduction of inflammation, basically the regulation of hormones because cancer in a nutshell is a byproduct of an inflammatory process that's chronic and lasts long. So what I think with Emma is like, and with the natural nipple too, the um, algorithm that you that you mentioned, it's amazing because it's detective and diagnostic. But why I like what we're doing as well with disseminating knowledge and support resources is by helping someone succeed, that's preventative medicine. If you can actually mm -hmm. help them breastfeed for a little bit longer. Um, do you have anything to add to on that, Morgan? Um, no, I love what you just said. I will just to touch on it. So my mom had in 2016, she was diagnosed with uh, triple negative breast cancer. And so one of the recommendations, there's no genetic component to this or none that we know of at this point. Um, but they recommended like me have a baby before I turn 30, because that would reduce my chance of getting breast cancer and then to breastfeed for at least six months. Um, so I did all those things. So hopefully, you know, it helps me in the long run. But I mean, I'm also a lactation consultant. I've been in medicine for 11 years. So I was really confident in my ability to breastfeed and troubleshoot. But I'm like, I always told moms, like the reason that I felt confident to do this was I've been supporting people on this path for six years, you know, as a lactation consultant, like bedside, um, I've seen so many different variations of what can happen and how to troubleshoot it. I would never expect a first time mom to be able to do that on her own. It's just, it's not possible. Like you can't, it is not possible. And it's not possible to have the level of confidence that I had because of my personal and professional experience. So I'm like the disseminating of knowledge and getting that support that's in the moment that you need it and unique to what you are going through is so important. And where I'm excited with what we're doing with Emma specifically on how like you can ask Emma a question and she's going to be able to help you understand what you're asking and get you that resource when you need it without having to go through like, you know, pages of Google, you know, search bars and or trying to find a lactation consultant that maybe you can't afford um but to just get that that support in the moment that you need it that's specific to you is what i think boosts that confidence and helps you succeed and get where you're trying to go 100 but, like, but like i i have a company that supports women from fertility to motherhood and i've had this company for a while and i did not know that breastfeeding reduced your chances to get breast cancer like how are these that's what shocks me and that's why i'm excited about products like emma and products like natural nipple and all of our partners and milkify like there's so many of them that are in this space is that that's the information that we need to get to women because those facts are really important also so that when we're all like sitting at three o'clock in the morning and the baby won't latch and your nipples are bleeding. I really think it would make me feel great if Emma or somebody was like, keep going, girl, you're reducing your chance of breast cancer. I'd be like, yes, yes. like keep those nipples bleeding. Like, but I didn't even know that. Like, that's crazy to me that these are things that women still do not know about their health. And I'm so excited for technology to help women learn these things because we all deserve to know them. Mm -hmm. 100%. And I think just if I can share a quick personal story before we wrap up, like a big part of what has driven my mission for making preventative therapeutics or modalities accessible to the underserved was, you know, watching my mom, like we have such, 
the U.S. is interesting and amazing, but like when you are on Medicaid or Medicare or food stamps, like getting someone to be able to schedule you in and give you empathetic care or just even get the preventative education you need. Like I remember being nine years old and feeling like I'm being treated less than human. I didn't choose like I didn't choose my demographic or my like income status that I was born into and watching her suffer from developing diabetes when literally that could have been dissemination of knowledge. He, like special K is not healthy, like it says on the box. And if you eat sugar all day, every day, you're gonna literally get diabetes that the glycolated hemoglobin just like busts up all your vessels. And, mm -hmm. and I think that because there's such a, you know, maternal healthcare desert, like what you're able to do with a free app is give people this knowledge to like, literally it's beyond maternal infant care. It's like, literally, how do you transform the health of the next generation? Mm -hmm. And I'm excited for that because everybody deserves I mean, to know this information that lives in the archives, but nobody, majority of us do not know how to read these, these studies and actually infer what does this p-value mean? Is this relevant for me? And beyond that, if you program the model to actually go deeper into the trenches of the studies that are in grants.gov and mm -hmm. um, that never hit a statistical significance. So you won't ever even learn about mm -hmm. this information if it didn't hit a certain p-value and get published. But I like to I like to think about all data as being valuable. Like even in the failed studies, there's mm -hmm. gonna be something that's really important. Like maybe it's the temperature that we store a cytokine at. Um, this is my, I'm just so passionate about this because yeah, we can, we can make all of this access to preventative education. We can put it in the buyer's hands, like taxpayers paid for those studies. So yeah. Emma's going to help disseminate it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's exactly what you just said. Like we all, all the time. I mean, these are like, this phrase is painted on high school walls, on government walls, that knowledge is power. But I so firmly believe that medical knowledge is health. And that's very different from power. Like we have to start to empower people with their own health data so they can have positive health outcomes. And if anyone's listening, if that sounds complicated, I promise you a lot of what we do is complicated. That is not complicated. That is a lot more simple than, than you would think. So, okay. So with that, I think we should close out. Lauren, it has been so awesome, awesome to have you. Where can people find more about Natural Nipple or find you? Yes, please go to thenaturalnipple.com. We, we just soft launched, by the way, guys. So please give us your feedback on the site, Webflow. We're trying to make it as easy. And then you can find us as well on at thenaturalnipple on Instagram. We're super active on there. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's Lauren Wright. And definitely send me any questions, but also on the Emma app as a medical advisor. Yeah. Yep, you can find Lauren and you can find Natural Nipple in the partner section um, of the Emma app. And then they're going to be going up on our website soon um, in the next month. So that's really exciting. But um, otherwise, um, don't forget that every week that we give away a $25 gift card to listeners of the app, all you need to, uh, excuse me, listeners of um, this podcast, all you need to do is join the Future of Femalehood Friendship Circle that's on the Emma app, which you can find Emma um, on the App Store and coming soon to Google Play. And um, also, if you want to rate this, uh, we always appreciate that. Helps us get more medical knowledge in the hands of more women. Um, but thank you for joining us. And we hope that you enjoyed the conversation and feel inspired to join the movement to build a healthier, happier women together using artificial intelligence.